Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. This is the word of God. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowds rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let us pray. Father, this morning as we open your word and we look to it, we just thank you that you heal the blind. Uh, This is something only God can do, and you do it. You healed the blind of physical blindness, but yet you heal us of spiritual blindness as well and bring us into your kingdom. And I pray this morning, as we look at these words, open our eyes, give us insight, that we may see the lessons you have for us. In your name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Now, if you look at your uh, outline today, I have How to Be Great. How to Be Great is the name of this uh, sermon this morning. And we need to start by understanding what greatness is. So greatness, so says our society, is when we have arrived at a certain status. Typically, that status means a couple different things. One, people are doing the work for you. I no longer have to do those jobs that nobody wants to do. I no longer have to go and clean my bathroom. I don't have to load the dishwasher. Those are the two I hate more than anything. I don't mind unloading it and other stuff, but I don't like those two. Somebody will do those for me. Somebody will do your laundry. Somebody will drive you in a car. Somebody will set up your appointments for you on a calendar so you don't have to set up time. People are going to do things for you. When we hear this, we think, wow, that person is great. They have arrived. That is true greatness. When we look at kings and queens, when we look at people in power, what again do we see? We see greatness because of the power they have, the power that they can exercise over those people that are under their authority. Now this morning, we're going to learn about greatness in a completely different way. We're going to learn about what Jesus sees greatness as, and it's a little bit of a shock to the system. Greatness is no longer something that we lord over anyone. It is no longer power over anyone. It is actually becoming someone else's slave in order to be great. So keep that in mind as we go through these passages this morning. But let's start with a quick lay of the land. Where are we at in Matthew right now? So we are one week away from Passion Week. Next week, we start with the triumphal entry, and we are in Passion Week. We have made it all the way here already. Three years of ministry down, done. We are now coming to Passion Week, and it's gone really quickly, if you ask me. But we are now in Passion Week, and that's where we stand. Jesus is just finishing his fourth of five discourses 
on kingdom life. The only discourse or only lesson we have left from him is the Olivet Discourse. We've had four so far, and we just ended last week with the one that was about what it looks like to live in the community of the kingdom. Do you remember that last week? The first shall be last and last shall be first. That was kind of the end of this last discourse. We had it starting back in chapter 18, going all the way through the rich young ruler in our parables from last week. We're going to see this week, we're now going to Jerusalem. We're now going to his death. This is not a normal mission trip. This is not a normal, we're going to go someplace else and we're going to minister some people for a while. This is now Jesus purposefully going to Jerusalem for his death. So that is the backdrop that we have as we go into this passage. So let's start with what is to come? What is to come? Verse 17, it'll say, he, oh, I'm sorry. I skipped there. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, and let's stop there. Let's examine this for a second. So Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, as I said, and he pulls aside the 12 disciples. This is the first time we see in Matthew these disciples called the 12. We'll see it a couple more times, but this is the first time they're called the 12. All right, and that's specific. He does that on purpose. These are 12 purposefully chosen disciples that are going to carry on his work in an authority position. Now, they are a special group, and they're also his inner circle. So he's pulling aside his inner circle as they're going up to Jerusalem, and he's going to tell them something very special. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, this has a lot of meaning. We're going up to Jerusalem. We're heading to this place. Now, if you know or if you've seen what the scribes and Pharisees have done this far, that's their seat of power. That's where they're most powerful. And if Jesus goes there, bad things are going to happen. There's no way he could possibly go to Jerusalem without some type of confrontation with these leaders in Israel. So when he says, see, we're going to Jerusalem, we see, hey, he's going there on purpose, and there is going to be some type of confrontation coming. Well, he knows what it's going to be, of course. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Now, a lot of the time when we read this, we go, wow, he's going to be delivered over, and he knows this. This is pre-planned. Nothing we're going to talk about today, nothing he's going to foretell us, none of this is unexpected. All right? None of this is, oh, wow, I didn't think if I went to Jerusalem, I would be crucified. I didn't think this would happen. No, this is planned. I'm going up to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests and scribes. By the way, they've been planning this. They've been planning this for a while now. Do you know what? They truly hate Jesus. Of all the teachers, they hate Jesus the most. Why? Because they don't get their power. They don't get to be who they want to be. He holds them to the letter of the law. So as we go up, I'm going to be handed over to these men who absolutely hate me. And what are they going to do then? And they will condemn him to death, the Son of Man, me, Jesus. Now this speaks of two things. One, there's going to be a trial. If they're going to condemn him to death, there has to be a trial. Now, it also speaks to the, the idea that this trial is probably a farce. Has Jesus at this point done anything at all to deserve death? No. 
Not once has he done anything by Jewish law that would deserve death. But when he goes, the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin, will put him on trial. And what's the only logical outcome of this trial? Death. They have to condemn him to death. Why? Because they don't like the teaching of this man. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Well, it gets worse here. It's one thing to be condemned to death in Jewish society by your own people. It's a whole other thing when you're handed off to Gentiles to be killed. So they're going to have the Romans do their dirty work and kill Jesus for them. They think that this probably absolves them of guilt, right? We condemned him to death. We did what we think. Now we can have the actual Romans kill him and it absolves me of any guilt or shame, right? I can say the Romans actually did it. We didn't do it. Let's hand him over to the Romans. Let's see what are the Romans going to do. Jesus says to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Mocked, verbally abused, mentally abused. This is in front of people. When you're mocked, it's not in a hidden room because then nobody can hear it. When we mock someone, I want to make sure everybody can hear it. When we're at a sports game and we're yelling at opposing fans, which I know most of you probably don't do, but I do, you want to make sure that everybody can hear the great things I'm saying about my team and how I'm calling your team down. That's mocking. They did this to Jesus in front of everyone. They mentally abuse him. They flog him. They physically punish him. Now, flogging is reserved for just two things. Very, very harsh punishment, meaning the harshest punishment you can give someone outside of death or before crucifixion. Flogging is not something that happens day to day. This is a very special punishment for a very evil person. And that's what Jesus is going to have to go through. And then it's going to finalize with crucifixion. He's going to be killed as one of the worst criminals in society. Doesn't get any worse than this. There is no worse death at this point than crucifixion. Now remember, Jesus is foretelling this to us right now. Jesus is telling us, we are going up to Jerusalem, disciples, and I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be judged and found guilty. I'm going to be given to the Romans, the most ruthless people we know. They're not going to take it easy on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me, and they're going to crucify me. That is what's going to happen right now. Now, this shouldn't be a shock to the disciples. This has happened at least three times before, maybe four, depending on how you look at it. In Matthew 10, he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, meaning that he will die by the cross. Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed. Matthew 17, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then later on in the same chapter, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus has in the past already told the disciples, this is coming. This is not new news, but now there's urgency to this news. He pulls them aside. He says, settle down, put down your phones, look at me. I've got something very important to tell you right now. Look at my eyes. I'm going to go up, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. 
Now, in some sense, this is very encouraging for us. Now, you look at me and say, what does it matter with you? Why would this be encouraging in any way? You know, this is God's plan. This was his plan all along. This was the plan all throughout the Old Testament. This is what has to be done in order for us to be reconciled to God. The perfect lamb has to die. Like I said, this is not some catastrophe that happens that we don't know. This is not some tragedy that happens. This is pre-planned by God so that we may be reconciled to him. Jesus knows this as well. God is in control. God is sovereign. God knows what is going on. But at the same time, this does not absolve these leaders that are plotting and planning against Jesus to kill him. Divine sovereignty and the human details of life and the human will are in tension here, and they're left there. We have the tension of God pre-planning and the tension of the leaders putting Jesus to death go hand in hand. But this is the heart of the gospel. This is the importance of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, according, in accordance with the scriptures. This is the number one important thing that has to happen. And Jesus is telling his disciples that. I have to go. I have to die. Be prepared for it. Be prepared for it. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We remember this death. Why? Because it unifies us and reconciles us to God. But there's also hope. The passage doesn't end, I will be crucified, does it? If you look there, I've left out this small key piece right at the end. It says, and I just missed my spot. It says, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus will be raised on the third day. He will not stay in the grave. He will not stay down. He will be raised and he will be victorious. I'm going to die, disciples. I'm going to die. A terrible, terrible death. But just wait. On the third day, I will be raised. Death cannot hold me down. The grave cannot hold me. The kingdom will be fulfilled. Now, when Jesus finishes this, Let's put our, ourselves in the disciples for a second. What do you think they're thinking? I'm sure some of them are going, all right, Jesus, you told us this before. We'll prepare ourselves. I, I think we're good. I get it. I'm sure some of them are going, what is he talking about? This kingdom that he's talking about, this is our earthly kingdom. It's still coming, right? And we're going to see that in a minute. But for sure, we know the disciples did not understand the message. They did not understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. They did not understand that when Jesus was going to die, he was truly going to die in the most horrific way possible. Let's look at the next point. Upside down model. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, we don't know the exact timing did Jesus pull his disciples away? They get back on the road, and five minutes later, the mom comes up and asks them this question 10 minutes later, maybe an hour later. But you would think, if you're James and John, and you have any social awareness at all, that you might go to your mom and say, Mom, Jesus just told us he's going to die. Let's not do this right now. 
This might not be the best time. But no, of course not. Who would do that? Let's just keep going. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, I'm not sure how Jesus said, what do you want? But I know how I would say it. What do you want? Seriously? You're stopping me right now? I just told you all that and you're going to come and you're going to ask me for something? I just spilled my guts. I told my inner circle exactly how I'm feeling, what I'm worried about. I am a human. I do have feelings. I do have anxiety about what's coming up. But you're going to come up and ask me something? Now, his loving, kind character probably was the exact opposite. He probably said it in a very loving and kind voice of, how can I help you? What do you want? Let me help you. But she just straight up asked the question, which I do on some level respect her for. She doesn't pull anything back. She doesn't, you know, sugarcoat it or anything else. She straight up asks, hey, my sons are important. Make them important. Put them at your right. Put them at your left. Can they have the two primary places of power? So when you think about a kingdom, if you look at the pictures, you always have the king sitting in the middle on this big, tall chair, right? And then you have counselors. Typically on your right, you will have your lead counselor, somebody that you respect the most, and they will have the second most power in the kingdom. And on your left is typically the commander of the armies. Now it's different. Sometimes this may be another counselor or others, but the person on your left is typically the commander of the armies, which is a very powerful position. So on my right and on my left, these two primary places of power, Jesus, give them to James and John, my sons, right after Jesus said he's going to die. Now, I'm painting this as a bad thing, but I do have to give her some benefit. In this culture, when you followed a patron, the expectation was that that patron would provide for you. So when the disciples left everything to follow Jesus, there was an expectation in society that he would take care of their needs and he would make sure that they were set basically for life when he was done with them. Whether that's giving them a job or giving them something else, the expectation is that they're taken care of by the teacher, by their patron. So her asking this actually isn't completely out of line. Timing is terrible, but the question itself is well within what you would expect somebody to ask. Jesus, we've left everything for you, just as Peter said. You're our patron. How are you going to take care of us? What are we going to get out of this? Right Now, this is the mom, which is a little strange. You would think these boys are old enough to do it on their own. I can't see me calling my mom, asking her to do something like this. But the mom comes and does it for these men. And Jesus answers her, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, the cup represents the wrath coming. When we see the cup, we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament. The cup represents the wrath coming. You're going to have to drink pain and suffering in order to drink my cup. Now, the disciples don't understand this. Yes, I do understand that just hours ago, they were told what Jesus' cup is going to be. 
It's going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But they still didn't get it. They're still thinking this cup is a cup of power, that I'm going to be able to just sip this cup and be with Jesus, and it's going to be great. Of course we're able to do this. Little do they know that's not what it is. Little do they know that they are going to follow him with this cup. One of them is going to be martyred. One of them is going to be exiled. They're going to definitely drink the cup that Jesus drank. But regardless of that, that's all they're promised. They can't have these places of power because Jesus says these aren't mine to give. They're not mine to give. They're the Father's prerogative who gets that power. I am unto the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. This is something I expect every time. Whenever I hear of somebody else asking for something to put themselves above me, don't you always look at that person and go, really? You just did that? Can you imagine these 12? They've been together for three years now. They know each other pretty well. They've been traveling together, living together, eating together, going on trips together. And these two brothers have the audacity to have their mother go and ask them for a place of power. If you were one of the other 10, wouldn't you be upset? Just a little upset? Of course, they're indignant. They say, what were you guys thinking? And I'm sure there's a lot of jealousy. I'm sure a lot of them are thinking, man, I wish my mom was around to ask. That would be great. How come I'm not doing this? What was I thinking? But Jesus, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must, must but whoever must be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So remember, we're still on this trip to Jerusalem. We're walking along. The ten are arguing with the two brothers. I kind of think about this as one of our long road trips, right? I'm driving, and I'm a very frustrated driver to begin with, and it's even worse than when there's a lot of noise behind me. So, of course, being the good father, I turn around and go, hey, you quiet down, or I'm going to pull this car over and have a talk with you, right? Many of us have said that before, I'm sure. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus says, hey, I got to pull this car over and we got to have a talk. You guys, stop arguing. Stop this. I need to tell you what the truth is. And he starts with this negative example of the Gentiles. The example that I started with. Gentiles lord it over. That is their style of leadership. The strong man style of leadership. When I am in a leadership position, I have all the authority and you will do what I say. If you don't do what I say, bad things will happen. That's their style of leadership. That's everything we've been taught in history up to this point. That's the style of leadership. Even in Israel, we have that style of leadership. They said, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. Please give us a king. We don't want to have God in charge of this, we want to have a king, somebody we can see. It makes no sense, but that's what they wanted, right? And that's what they got. And that's what Jesus says here. Gentiles, and even you, when you have power, you lord it over. But that's not what we're supposed to be like. We also see this in the early church. Do you remember this guy named Diotrephes? 
Diotrephes, he loved his authority and his power. In Corinthians, we hear about the super apostles who loved to have the authority and the power. But Jesus says something. It says, it shall not be so among you. You are to look different. We don't look like that. And then he gives them this radical idea of what leadership looks like. He says, if you want to be a leader, you don't promote yourself to this place. You make yourself a servant. Not just a servant, a slave. You're not up here. You want to be a leader? We go down here. Now I'm sure hearing this teaching from anybody but Jesus, you would snicker at it. But with Jesus, this is the absolute truth. Jesus, son of God, who could have stayed in heaven, never, never had to come down to earth, who could have been in the very place of God, what does Philippians say? Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He became a man. Not just a man, but he humbled himself to death. What kind of death? The worst possible death that could happen. That is our example. That is what humility looks like. Hendrickson says, this is one of the most precious sayings of Christ. There is no greater. Make yourself a servant. Make yourself a slave. That's what Jesus says leadership looks like. Imagine that for a second. Don't put yourself in a place where you're lording over people. Put yourself in a place where you can help people. It's sad. We still do this today. We still do not get it. We still love the strongman mentality. We don't understand what Christian leadership is. John Stott says the symbol of an authentic Christian leadership is not the purple robe of an emperor, but the coarse apron of a slave, not the throne of ivory and gold, but a basin of water for the washing of feet. Humble servanthood is the greatest because it emulates Jesus Christ. Today, we don't get it because we still love our strong leaders. Look at our governments. What do we like? We like the strong leader. The strong leader that's going to take charge and do things. We don't want a plurality. We don't want anything else. We want that strong leader. We love it. As we talked about in the early church, we saw that too. But this has caused a lot of pain in the church. We've had a lot of fallen leaders. Ravi Zacharias, Carl Lentz, Hillsong, Jim McDonald, Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll, Bill Gothard, Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, that's just the last 40 years. How many leaders have we had that have decided that my goals, my wants, my needs, my power is more important than everyone else? All of these situations, all of these leaders point back to one truth. They at some point lorded over others rather than being a servant. They all started to cultivate celebrity instead of servanthood. They all used positions of authority to their own ends instead of the servant leadership to help their people. 
Chuck Colson says, Nothing distinguishes the kingdom of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people. The other seeks to serve people. One promotes self. The other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position. The other lifts up the lowly and despised. Power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. The lure of power can separate the most resolute Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service to others. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of others. When we're leading or when we're put in places of leadership, what is our motivation? What is your motivation? Is your motivation inward? Because it shouldn't be. Is your motivation outward to point back at you? It shouldn't be. Your only motivation should be looking to Christ and what he's done. And what does that motivation give you? It gives you the proper perspective that I'm to serve rather than to be served. When you look at leaders that have served with a humble attitude, we see some of the greatest men that we've ever had on this earth. And the pinnacle of that being Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you. What is your motivation when you lead? Is it I'm here because I'm in charge? Or it's I'm here to help you. How can I be of service? What can I do for you? If we want to be like Jesus, that's the questions we have to ask. That's where we have to go. John Stott also says, The whole mentality is incomparable with the way of the cross. The Son of Man renounced the power and glory of heaven and humbled himself to be a slave. He gave himself without reserve and without fear to the despised and neglected sections of the community. His obsession was the glory of God and the good of human beings who bear his image. To promote these, he was willing to endure even the shame of the cross. Now he calls us to follow him. Not to seek great things for ourselves, but rather to seek first God's rule and God's righteousness. That's what we need to do. That's how we lead. Seek him first and his righteousness. And everything will be put in place. Now one of the big questions I ask myself is, if the disciples didn't get it, and sometimes we don't get it, how are we ever going to get this? Is there any way that this changes? How am I ever going to get this idea that I'm not as important as I think and I need to serve others? How does that get into my brain? Can we change as leaders? Is there any way? And thank the Lord for John. John, in one of his letters in 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love that he lays down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John got it. By the end of his life, he understood what true leadership was. He understood what serving others looks like. He understood that we need to be like Christ. So there is hope. There is hope. We can be leaders like this. You can be leaders like this. Just look to Christ in everything. Now, the reason I call this the upside-down model is that typically when you view a pyramid, who's at the top? The most important, right? The person getting the most out of the pyramid. 
When we flip it, now that person's at the bottom holding everyone else up. How many people benefit in an upside-down pyramid? The top is huge. All because of the sacrifice of one person at the bottom. When we're leading, when we look at others, we're not just helping those around us. They will see that example and help others also. And it will go on and on and on. Hence, this upside-down model is key in our churches. It's key in our communities. That if we are sacrificial, if our leaders are sacrificial and servants, it'll spread out to everyone and have a great effect across the board. Let's go on to this last portion, the true Messiah. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So we're now moving, moving on. We're now leaving Jericho. So if you look at a map, and I Googled it to make sure I was about right, if you take today's roads, it's about an eight and a half hour walk from today's Jericho to Jerusalem. So we're kind of in the last little bit of their walk to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to have a triumphal entry, but we already know, as he foretold us, he's going there to die. He's going there to die. And we have this story. They're coming out of Jericho, and typically what happens is outside the city gates, you have the beggars. You would have the people begging for things. Now, we talked about this last week with laborers. Typically, your normal person, and what I mean by normal is somebody who does not have any type of deformities at all, will work and they'll go to the marketplace. If they don't have a trade, they'll go to the marketplace and they'll get a job. For those that are blind or deaf or lame or things like that, they will put them by the roadside outside of the city so that they can beg for money. Just like we see today, a lot of people standing on our major crossroads begging for money. People come by, they want to get this money. They're coming out and we've got what I call the Tiger Woods mob. Now, why is it a Tiger Woods mob? Because they have to be quiet. They're following Jesus. It's kind of a golfing event. I'm sure there's the people just, shh, let's follow Jesus. Let's bask in his celebrity. We're walking with Jesus to Jerusalem. This is pretty cool. And you have these two guys on the side of the road start screaming, Jesus, over here. Now, if you ever watch golf and you ever watch those Tiger Woods mobs, after he hits the ball and they go, go Tigers, stuff like that, I'm always like, oh my goodness, you just ruined the whole moment. Why did, would you do something like that? Stop screaming so loud. Well, that's exactly what this crowd did. They said, hey, shh, Jesus is here. Let's be quiet. Let's not say this. Leave him alone, please. Now, I passed something on to my son, Alex, that I feel a little bad for. It's a blessing and a curse. I, for some reason, have a very loud voice. When I want to be heard, I can be heard. There's not a lot of people that can be louder than me. I can get my point across. And these two beggars are kind of in that same category. 
They're so loud, they want to get their point across so that Jesus can hear them. Now, how do they do it? They do it by invoking the name we see from Matthew chapter 1. Son of David. Messiah. King. Jesus. We recognize you're the Messiah. Over here. Look at me, please. Now, they're also blind. They don't know exactly where Jesus is, so you've got to be really loud. He could be anywhere. So I've got to scream really loud. Now, I always like at this point to stop and think about this situation. Think about where Jesus is at. Remember, Jesus is human. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. Which means as a man, we have feelings. We have thoughts. We have something that goes through our brain. Jesus just told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. His disciples turn around, ask him for seats of power, argue about seats of power, complain about this. He has to teach them, hey, this is what true servant leadership looks like in the kingdom. It doesn't look like everybody else. It looks like this. And after all that, I'm sure he's very exhausted. Can you imagine that? For the parents out there, the most frustrating, exhausting thing is when you have to tell your kids the same thing over and over and over and over again. I know for me personally, it gets hard. You have to tell them the same thing over again, and then I get frustrated, I get angry, I don't want to talk to them. It's not necessarily that they've done anything right or wrong more than normal. It's because I don't have the patience to deal with it. I'm just exhausted as a human because I have to do the same thing over and over again. And I'm sure I'm thinking about Jesus here going, I just went through all that and now I've got these two yahoos on the side of the road screaming at me. This is just beyond me. Seriously, do I have to deal with this? What is going on? Now, luckily our Savior emulates exactly what he just taught us about. It could have been very easy for him to just walk by. Right, just walk right by him. Forget him. Instead, he stops. And he asks them what they want. And they want to see, of course. And it says in pity. Now, I don't like that term pity there. Compassion is a better translation. In compassion, in having true compassion for them, he stops. And he looks at them. And he heals them. Why? Because he's gentle and lowly. Nobody is below him. He is servant to all. He will stop and he will help whoever needs it. Talk about the perfect example of what he just taught in leadership. The leader stops. The leader stops, has compassion, listens. He doesn't just heal him and walk on. He has a conversation with him. What can I do for you? What is it that you want from me? Oh, you want to see? All right, we can do that. Let's do that. Let me touch you. And in compassion, he heals them. And then it says, they followed him. Now, typically when we see follow, we see this idea of they may have been in a group and then kind of went off. The word here is a little bit different. They became disciples. So after this happens, not only do they love the Lord and happy that they have their physical eyesight back, they're spiritually now awakened to the fact that they want to become disciples and they want to walk with Jesus and go with him and they follow him. Now remember, up until this point, when Jesus heals the blind people, what does he do? He says, shh, don't tell anybody yet. 
Let's not tell anybody. All right, you just go away and let's be real quiet about this. Now we'll see Jesus bringing them in as followers. Now, why is this miracle important? Why is it here? Why is it kind of put in in this spot? Well, a couple different reasons. First one, only the Messiah heals blindness. Now, I was challenged this week reading one of the commentaries. They said, blindness is never actually healed in the Old Testament. And I went, there's no way. That's got to be wrong. I've got to find the passage where somebody is healed from blindness. And I did a lot of digging, probably way more than I should have. But it's right. Blindness is not actually healed in the Old Testament. In fact, there's only one person in the Bible that actually heals blindness. That's Jesus. Because God can heal blindness. It's a hard miracle. When we look at faith healers, you guys remember, and they used to be big back in the 90s, these faith healers, they would heal people that had broken legs, maybe they were lame, this or that. Did you ever see them heal a blind person? No. Healing the blind is not easy. This is not a run-of-the-mill miracle. This is very important, and this is a mark of the true Messiah. Isaiah 34 says that the true Messiah will come healing the blind. This is a mark of the Messiah. That's why this story is here. Jesus truly is the Messiah. Two, as the Messiah, how does he lead? He's enforcing the teaching that he just gave us. He's willing to be the servant to all. There is no one above me. I will stop and I will have compassion on anyone. Again, I think about us and I think about our lives and I think about the frustration we have when we're told we have to stop doing something in order to help someone else. Jesus is on the most important mission of his life to head to Jerusalem, to die for our sins. He's determined. He's set. He's had some frustrations along the way, and he's walking along. And what does he do? Does he ignore people and go on that mission? No, he stops for anyone. When we're doing our work and we get that call that says, hey, could you come over and help me move a couple boxes? Hey, could you come over and just sit with me and talk with me for a while? Hey, we had somebody that got admitted to the hospital. Could you go over and just sit with them and pray for them for a little bit? What is our typical response? Is our typical response, well, I'm kind of in the middle of something right now. The Buckeyes are only up by 30. I need to wait till they're up by 45 to get, you know, to leave this. This is important, right? Or maybe I'm doing something that I, I can't stop right now. I just need to keep doing it. Or whatever it may be, do we put our own interests in front of giving up and sacrificing for our brothers and sisters. Jesus stopped, had compassion, and healed them. Now in closing, I want to visit, revisit three things. First one is this, the beauty of God's plan in Jesus. Jesus, in foretelling his death, shows us a couple things. One, he shows us that God is always in control, and God meant for this to happen. God is never out of control. God is never shocked by what's going on. 
God is always there and he has a beauty to his plan. The beauty is that he brought us into his kingdom. Now, if you don't know this today, I would ask that you look to Jesus as your savior. God put him here to die for us so that we might be saved. And that's the beauty of his plan. Two, our leaders need to look different. We need to have an upside down model of leadership. We do not lord over people. We do not look down on people. We are a servant to all. Now it's interesting, I've heard many times, many people say, well, that guy is a delegator. That means he's in the ultimate authority. That doesn't mean that. Well, that guy, he kind of sits on high and kind of tells people what to do in these situations. He's an authority leader. He's not the right type of leader. Well, that's not true. Anytime we have a leader that is willing to put themselves out there and help to serve, that is the right leader we need. And that's the upside down model that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to look different. If we don't look different, we have a problem with our leadership If you ever hear our elders come up and dictate to you, I am in charge, you will do this because I say period, there's a problem. We need to look at that. I can say that because I know our elders serve us and want to serve us in all things. And I know that's their, their thought, that's their love, and that's who they are. Just like Jesus, can we do that also? And then the last point is Jesus is the true Messiah. Only the Messiah can do what Jesus has done. Only the Messiah can save his people. Only the Messiah is our perfect example. And Jesus is that. When you walk away today, in this afternoon, you forget most of what I said. I want you to think on one thing. Jesus is the Messiah and our great example of servant leadership. And dwell on that. Let that sink in. Think about how that affects your life and the way that you treat others. Think about how that should affect your walk with the Lord and what he's done for us. And think about how you're going to live tomorrow differently based upon that. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the gift of your son on the cross that you would send your most precious son, a son that didn't need to leave, that didn't need to come to this earth, that didn't need to become a human, that didn't need to die on a cross, but he did it anyway so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we would have a great hope in you, that someday we will be with you And he did this, Lord, as an example of what a true servant leader is. I pray, Lord, that you would just put this in our minds, put this in our hearts, that as we go out today, as we live our life forward, that we would be the same sacrificial leader to those around us, that we would truly show your love to those around us, that whether it's in this church, Lord, or it's among the secular community, that your love would be shown and many would be drawn to you. In your name I pray, amen.